Chapter 10, The Denouement. So this is it, the final chapter in Nine Princes in Amber. Chapter 10 is about 2,800 words long, by the way. And it's a pretty short chapter, and it, it really kind of brings home this bell curve shape, if you will, in terms of the pacing of the chapters. You know, chapter 1 was 2,400 words, a little bit shorter than chapter 10, and those are kind of the bookends. Chapter 9, right before this, was 3,840 words. So he's just increasing the pace as he drives toward the end of the novel. And chapter 10 is basically just Corwin at the lighthouse. You know, he basically goes up and knocks on the door of the lighthouse, and he meets Jopin. And so this is kind of a cool character. He's the keeper of the lighthouse. He was mentioned once before by Dworkin. And here we're meeting him in the flesh, and he's this kind of stereotypical whiskey-drinking, salty, bearded seaman. He's been alive a long time. He's kind of a legend. I couldn't find anything on the name Jopin. That's probably made up. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. You could say Joppin. Maybe Janice Joplin is rolling around in Zelazny's head. She was rising to fame right around the time that he's writing Nine Princes in Amber, but that's just speculation. And Jopin is like, who are you? You know, what are you doing here? What do you want? Super grumpy. And Corwin says, quote, if I was that unrecognizable in my emaciated, hairy condition, I decided that I might as well maintain my anonymity, end quote. And so Corwin decides he's going to fake it with Jopin, and he's falling back into that, like, you know, faking it thing, which he's very comfortable with. We've seen him play that role a couple of times. And he makes up a story about how he's been in a shipwreck, and, you know, he's washed ashore and so forth. And, you know, we get, again, kind of Corwin the detective. He goes inside, and he starts to take off his boots, but then he decides that, you know, his feet are super dirty. So if he was in a shipwreck and his feet wouldn't be dirty, they'd be clean because he's been in the water. And so he keeps his boots on and all that sort of thing, you know, Corwin the detective. And, you know, there's some back and forth and they tell stories and drink whiskey and Corwin sleeps, you know, and like, it's just amazing. Like he's got his freedom. It's incredible. And, you know, the next day, they're talking more, and Jopin wants to hear about the shipwreck, so he makes up a big story. And Corwin says that he stays with him for three months. So three months recuperation on the island of Cabra. And he develops a kind of friendship with Jopin. It turns out Jopin is apolitical, doesn't care about what's going on in Amber, and doesn't, you know, hates all the Amberites anyway, and it's kind of throwing all the princes under the bus. And, you know, Corwin says that he grows fond of Jopin. He's got kind of an affection for this character. It's an apolitical friend who's helping him out. And, you know, I think this is kind of a taste of what we're going to see a lot more of in Bill Roth later on. There's this idea that there are people who care for Corwin, even though they either don't know who he is or they do and don't care. Like, he's got these apolitical, objective friends who just like him for who he is. And I think that's part of his journey when he realizes that there are people out there and that there's 
you know, good in people and empathy. And it's not all about like who's king in Amber, which has been sort of his singular focus for so long. And you know, Jopin kind of helps bring that out in Corwin. And he tells Jopin that his name is Cory, so that's kind of fun. He's using his Earth name. And then during this three months, while he's just getting stronger and better and, you know, he's doing stuff around the island, someone tries to contact him using the Trump. And, you know, he doesn't know who it is. Is it Eric? Is it Julian? Gerard? Kane? And, and, you know, there's no way for us to know who it was. But it's just important to know that they've discovered he's escaped and people are trying to contact him. And then finally, he feels like he's recovered enough that he can leave and you know, he's got stuff to do, obviously. He's got to get his revenge on Eric and go into shadow and everything. And so you know, the night before, he has drinks with Jopin and they say their farewells. And Jopin says, quote, good luck to you, Corwin. I hope to see you again one day, end quote. And, you know, Jopin at this point has obviously come to recognize him. He knows who he is, but, you know, it's kind of cool that he doesn't care. You know, he just likes Corwin for who he is. I don't care who's king. I don't care what your status is. I just like playing chess with you. And, you know, he makes Corwin promise that he'll come by for a game of chess at some point. And, of course, we don't know if that ever happens. Probably not. And Jopin gives him his boat, which is called the Butterfly, and he says he can take it, a little sailboat. And so, you know, Corwin prepares the boat. And in the morning, he wakes up before dawn. Jopin's still sleeping, and he doesn't, you know, want to have a big, long, mushy goodbye. So that's good. And, you know, just before he gets on the boat and sails away, he looks through the spyglass back at Amber. And this is when he sees the Black Road. And this is like the first introduction of this very important thing. What had been what he calls the peaceful Valley of Garneth is now transformed. And he's pretty sure it's because of his own curse. And he says, quote, I had created a new entranceway into the real world. Garneth was now a pathway through shadows, shadows dark and grim. Only the dangerous, the malicious might walk that pathway. This was the source of the things that Rain had mentioned, the things that troubled Eric. Good, in a way, if they kept him occupied. But as I swung the glass, I couldn't escape the feeling that I had done a very bad thing indeed. End quote. And the Black Road is cutting through Garneth, and heads straight into Amber. And again, this kind of argues for the north-south coastline geography, because the Black Road would be hitting Amber and then heading south toward the Quartz of Chaos. And so, you know, as the novel comes to a close, you realize, okay, there's a new enemy out there. And it's nuanced because... It's an enemy of Amber that maybe was created by Corwin. And so he's a little bit conflicted. But at the end of the day, there's actually a shocking lack of guilt on Corwin's part. He says, quote, so be it, I decided. In the meantime, it would give Eric something to have insomnia over, end quote. 
And his hatred of Eric just still burns so bright and so hard that he looks at this thing that's threatening the very existence of Amber, and all he can think of is, good, it's a problem for Eric. My curse worked. And then he talks a little bit about his plan going forward. He says, quote, I had set sail for a land near as sparkling as Amber itself, an almost immortal place, a place that did not really exist, not any longer. It was a place which had vanished into chaos ages ago, but of which a shadow must survive somewhere. All I had to do was find it, recognize it, and make it mine once again, as it had been in days long gone by. And then, with my own forces to back me up, I would do another thing Amber had never known. I didn't know how yet, but I promised myself that guns would blaze within the immortal city on the day of my return. End quote. So he's telling us about this shadow that he once knew. That's where he's going. That's his new objective. He's telling us he's going to raise an army. That he's going to have guns. And you're just like, oh boy. This is going to be awesome. And he writes two notes. And attaches them to the leg of two different birds. There's a white bird. And he writes a note that says, I am coming And that bird is going ahead to the place of his desire. This shadow that we don't know what it is, but obviously it's Avalon, but he hasn't told us that yet. And then he attaches a second note to the leg of a blackbird. And that note says, quote, Eric, I'll be back, end quote. And that predates the Terminator. And it's a really fun line. And what better line, by the way, to create the cliffhanger that is Nine Princes and Amber. I mean, it's just the ultimate revenge story now. I mean, this guy was going up against his brother, who's evil, who's mad. He had the better claim to the throne, builds an army, attacks Amber, gets utterly defeated and slaughtered, captured, humiliated, eyes burnt from his head, thrown into a dungeon cell for four years, manages his escape, Announce payback time. It's like the Leonardo DiCaprio character from The Revenant. It's just total and utter revenge. And the final line of the novel is, quote, a demon wind propelled me east of the sun, end quote. And I think demon wind foreshadows the guns of Avalon where we're going to have a lot more about demons. So that's Nine Princes in Amber, the book that started it all. And it's also the book that marked a transition for Zelazny into full time and, as discussed, arguably more commercial writing. It's also a crossing from science fiction into fantasy. In a letter to his Doubleday editor, Zelazny admitted, quote, I meant it to be something a bit lighter than my usual fare, sort of a sword and sorcery, something which I would have fun writing, end quote. And it also sits, this novel, at the transition from the 60s to the 70s. And we see that in some of the themes. The manuscript gathered dust on a shelf for more than a year until Samuel Delaney mentioned the novel to the publisher at Doubleday, who purchased it. And that comes from the Kovacs book. 
The hardcover was mistakenly pulped shortly after its release, so it wasn't until the 1971 paperback edition that Nine Princes and Amber really began to gather its wide readership. And what did Zelazny himself think about Amber? According to Warren Lapine, who's a publisher and a Zelazny expert, quote, I got mixed signals from Zelazny on Amber. In some respects, he seemed to downplay its importance in his career, and in other ways, it was clear it was quite important to him. He singled Amber out as his and his alone, that he would be fine with people playing with his other universes, but not in Amber. So obviously it meant something to him that none of his other works did. While I don't know for sure if that was just because of how successful it was, or if it held some other place in his heart, my gut feeling is that it was very close to his heart, end quote. And it's close to all of our hearts, I might add. And I've said this before and on fan sites, but I consider Lord of Light to be Zelazny's Lear and Amber to be Zelazny's Hamlet. And as a fellow Shakespeare enthusiast, I think Zelazny would appreciate that comparison. You know, King Lear is far and away Shakespeare's best play. It's a perfect tragedy in so many ways, just flawlessly written. And the great writer Harold Bloom called King Lear, quote, the height of literary experience, end quote. But Hamlet, in all of its imperfections, remains the more popular and the more often performed of those two plays. And it's what we would describe today as more commercial. And it's, you know, Hamlet is less perfectly written, but like Corwin, we just love seeing Hamlet on stage. So that's Nine Princes and Amber. Thanks for listening. Next up, the second and arguably darkest book of the series, The Guns of Avalon. <laughs>